Hi, everyone. I think we're going to go ahead and get started. It is the 11th, so let's do it. Um, before we get started, if you could kindly silence your cell phones, or better yet, turn them off. Be wonderful. Hope you're enjoying your week so far. I am still Rachel Yoder, and I am still very honored to be here curating and introducing the 11th Hour Lecture Series. Um, and today, we have a great lecture. Next. Am I still there? Okay, it's called Mixed Feelings. Here we go. Lon Otto, who joins us this summer from St. Paul, Minnesota, is the author of three collections of short stories, most recently, A Man in Trouble, published in 2015. His fiction, nonfiction, and poetry have been widely anthologized, and you might have even heard some of his stories on NPR's selected shorts. Today, Lon will address how we might go about crafting emotionally resonant pieces of writing that capture the complicated and even contradictory feelings that animate the lives of our characters and our own lives, for that matter. Please join me in welcoming Lon Otto. It's, it's not that complicated. Uh, but then they just were kind enough to, to get me this smart water, which first of all, I didn't know quite how to open it, but I could saw a little tally, got it open, didn't want to be coughing, so squirted it into my mouth. It hits the back of my throat um, in the most alarming way possible. So uh, I'm going to use it only in emergencies, but I, I really appreciate the, the kindness of it. Um, I really appreciate you uh, coming here. Um, just when you're on a Tuesday, just when your writing is starting to gather steam and uh, maybe you need to calm down a little. So we'll, we'll try to allow that to happen. I'm going to talk for about a half an hour and then we'll get to the good part of the 11th hour, which is a conversation during which I hope you'll share your questions and observations and experiences regarding um, the topic today, which is the mixing of very different emotions and works of imaginative writing. I've been reading and writing literature and teaching it most of my life. I'm not sure when it happened, but pretty early in that long career, I realized that one of the most consistent common denominators of the writing that I loved the most, whether poetry, fiction, plays, essays, was an openness to a mix of emotions, especially the mix of contrasting emotions. Fear and hope, regret and gratitude, anger and love, sadness and laughter. Uh, laughter isn't an emotion, exactly, but amusement doesn't really capture what I'm talking about here, and this is one of the number of instances in which I hope you will, will help out um, after the monologue portion of the of today's 11th hour. Uh, an emotion that's equivalent of laughter. 
Might as well warn you right away, though, that there's going to be a certain amount of play in this terminology of this talk. And by play, I mean looseness, sloppiness, maybe. And if that bothers you, and why wouldn't it, your writers, you might want to just slip out now. All right, too late. When I was a freshman in high school, my English teacher made us write poems, which we then had to read aloud. Tony Brunner, a famously bad student, surprised us by volunteering to go first. His poem was about how basketball was the greatest of all sports, maybe the greatest of all things. It was a mess as we knew it would be, and we all laughed as he staggered through it, even the teacher, I think. Brunner just grinned and shrugged afterwards. He didn't seem to care, as he didn't seem to care about anything except basketball. And then Alex Ames read his poem, a long one about the death of his puppy. Alex was handsome and popular, and the poem was so sad that when he was done, we all sat there in hushed, breathless sorrow. Some of the girls and maybe a boy or two were crying. And then Brunner burst into laughter, hard, big, ha, ha, ha's that got me and a couple of other boys laughing helplessly along with him until the teacher shouted at us to cut it out. It wasn't surprising, really, my joining Brunner in his inappropriate, though in retrospect, retrospect, critically accurate hilarity. The previous year, I'd attended a conservative Lutheran grade school, and during the crucial confirmation-burdened eighth grade, I had a chronic problem with breaking into laughter during end-of-day devotions. I tried thinking about the saddest things in my life, but it wasn't always enough. I don't know what triggered it, the forced, fake solemnity and piety, I guess. I knew what filthy-minded little creeps we really were. And my friend Keith Redding, who sometimes would look at me. Despite my best efforts at uh, depression, I would just be seized with racking, principal, infuriating laughter until I had to leave the classroom and wait in the hall until the bell finally rang releasing me into a world where people didn't keep asking me what was so damn funny. In the long years since then, I find I've never quite outgrown the curse of inappropriate laughter, as some of you who know me might have noticed. I don't think it's ever really inappropriate, however, if you're struck by the comedy of something, though it's certainly sometimes rude and odd. I don't defend it, but I'm not going to get over it either. My bad behavior doesn't really have that much to do with our subject this morning in some ways, the mixing of strongly opposed emotions in writing, but I've been remembering it for some reason, maybe because of a certain strain of irreverence running through so many of the writers I most love, David Sedaris, Grace Paley, Stanley Elkin, George Saunders, Eudora Welty, writers who deal with the deepest, most authentic sadness and pain, irreverence that surprisingly often seems linked to active interest in religion. Flannery O'Connor, Jeff Powers, Mary Carr, Walker Percy, Anne Lamott. 
My preacher brother-in-law is fond of saying that God has a great sense of humor, as well as, needless to say, a disconcertingly serious side. I don't know about that, but I know I'm not alone in my conviction that profoundly mixed emotions are among the strongest characteristics of great writing. Why, though? Why is it good for writing, for our writing, and for the writing that teaches us how to become writers to combine strikingly different emotional registers? Well, for one thing, emotions often have a more striking effect when they vary in intensity and register, when they are set against contrary or at least strikingly different emotions. It sounds as if the brilliant Liz Lenz is going to address the effect tomorrow, offering the analogy of um, chiaroscuro from the world of painting, juxtaposing strongly defined dark and light colors, so I won't say much about that today. I'm reminded, though, of something I read years ago in a profile of the great Australian film director, Fred Scapizzi, which noticed that he had a chart in his office trailer that listed on one axis every scene in the film he was currently filming, Iceman, I think. The other axis of the chart ranked levels of emotional intensity, from the utter calm of someone relaxing on a beach to the frenzied intensity of a fight to the death. What Scapizzi and his assistant were looking for with this tool was several scenes in a row with the same level of intensity. Whether high or low or somewhere in between, they knew that having a string of scenes with the same level of intensity would weaken the film, presumably because the audience would become inured to the effect. I thought about Scapizzi um, Scapizzi's intensity chart a couple of years ago when watching the otherwise good film Mad Max Fury Road, which cranked the violent sound and violent action up to 11 and left it there for two exhausting hours. I liked Fury Road, despite the unvarying level of emotional intensity, but the earlier Road Warrior, dealing with more or less the same world, is a much, much better movie. I think anyway, thanks to its range of emotion and emotional intensity, with prominent comic characters and scenes of quiet waiting standing in contrast to the wild violence of savage vehicle chases. I did love the Vuvalini in Fury Road, the dashing elderly women blasting around on motorcycles though I have to admit that I loved them even more before I learned that their name wasn't Volvolini as I'd misheard it. For me, anyway, the same difference in quality applies to Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian and The Road. Equally violent, Blood Meridian constantly shifts emotional as well as intellectual and experiential registers, whereas The Road seemed to me to strike the same note of horror and hopelessness over and over again from the beginning almost to the very end, at which point it arbitrarily strikes the opposite note. I know the road has a lot of fans, and I'm sure some of you are here uh, listening to this. We can talk about that later on. Besides increasing the effect of emotional intensity, striking shifts of emotion can be a gift to the reader or viewer or listener, a 
comic moment, for instance, letting us at least briefly recover from scenes of horror. I suppose the best known example of this kind of momentary emotional relief is the scene of the drunken porter in, Shakespeare, in Shakespeare's Macbeth, a broad, kind of dirty uh, scene that follows the murder of a king and precedes a bunch of other murders. My own favorite example of mixed emotional registers serving as relief for an audience is William Faulkner's Light in August. The main plot of the novel is driven by the insanity of racial hatred and class and family obsession and sexual violence and includes murder and a castration. Amid the terrible darkness, however, there is an ongoing comic subplot. Lena Grove, an unwed young woman, is seeking the lover who got her pregnant and then abandoned her. Byron Bunch, mild, unassuming, decent man, who is momentarily confused with the lover, falls in love with Lena and doggedly follows her in her search. After the violence and insanity and profound sick and sick-making unhappiness of all of the book's main characters finally play themselves out, Faulkner gives his emotionally battered reader a startling, amazing gift, a final chapter in which a traveling furniture salesman, someone who is never named and hasn't had any part in the narrative, has returned home and is in bed with his wife. They've just made love, and they're going to make love again. They tease and joke with each other, as long-married couples do. And the husband tells his wife about a man and a woman he encountered on the road, clearly Lena, no longer really searching for her faithless lover, but just enjoying the adventure of travel, and Byron following her into whatever the future will offer them. It's funny and loving and full of a deep underlying sanity, health healing and hopeful. I can imagine a workshop arguing that you can't just drop a totally new character into the last chapter of a long novel, but they would be very, very wrong. I think that mixed feelings in literature often function this way, a comic dimension usually helping an audience bear tragedy, reminding us that sanity and kindness and love, perhaps peculiarly expressed and strange and unlikely, are fundamental parts of human experience too, however much evil seems ascendant. It can be disconcerting, however, this kind of shift. Mixed feelings in a story or poem or essay or play can throw us off balance as audience members, leaving us unsure as to how we should respond. I hadn't given a lot of readings when my first collection of stories, A Nest of Hooks, was published, and I found myself taken aback the first time I read from it publicly. I chose the story Submarine Warfare on the Upper Mississippi, which had been the title story of the collection until I learned that Stanley Elkin, who had chosen it for the Iowa School of Letters Prize, had complained that it sounded too much like Richard Browdigan, author of Trout Fishing in America, The Pill versus the Spring Hill Mine Disaster, and A Confederate General at Big Sur, which it absolutely did. Here's the opening of the story, Submarine Warfare on the Upper Mississippi. 
They would be surprised if they knew we were here. They would be very surprised to know a German submarine hangs below the rippling surface of the Mississippi River, St. Paul to starboard, Minneapolis to port. They would be surprised. But here we are, a steel pike swimming almost motionless in the slow young river facing upstream. How did we get here? That is what they would ask if they knew we were here. That would be their question. How did we get through the many locks? How did we slip past so many hostile eyes to come here 1,200 miles inland to the land of 10,000 lakes, to the land of sky blue waters? How did we get here? That is their question. It is not our question. It does not matter to us anymore. It is ancient history to us. It is old hat. Their question is not our question. Our question is, what do we do now? Now that we have penetrated into the American state of Minnesota, an Unterseeboot of the VIIC type, outmoded already when we sailed from Bremen, now that we are here, what do we do? That is our question. What do we do? A prior question, why were we sent here? That is the question my first mate asked. I had been fearing the question for a long time. What is our mission? I cannot tell him. I tell him, Willie, I cannot tell you that. We must not ask me the answer to that question. He accepts this as if it had been an answer. He has faith in me and in the Admiralty. How can I tell him that I have not the smallest idea why we are here, why we were sent to this, on this impossible journey? How can I tell him that after all we have been through? That is my private question. How can I tell him? I do not know how. The war is over for years. We know that. We are not idiots. We know the score. The score is Germany zero, America two. We know what's up. The jig is up. We have known it for years. So why have you not surrendered years ago? That is the question they would ask. The war is over for years. We don't even remember the war. What war? There has never been a war in the state of Minnesota, so what gives? Maybe you're part of the Sioux uprising. Maybe yours is a wild Indian submarine. Ha ha. That was our only war in Minnesota, and it was not even a war. An uprising is what it was. We understand all this. We understand that our position, the attaining of it, the holding of it, is worse than pointless. It's ludicrous and was so from before we impossibly attained it. A day we now know was 15 days after the end of the Third Reich. We remember that 20 years ago when we slid like a great savage pike between these cities. That is a day we remember. We will remember it when we have forgotten every other day. We are not stupid. We know the orders we wait for will never come. It gets darker after that, and darker still, and, and then something else. What happened when I first read that story many years ago is that it got some big laughs at first, and then faltering laughs, and then some of the audience clearly got uncomfortable as the story went on, darkening, then becoming something else. They were thinking, I think, that they'd maybe blundered in laughing. I don't think they did. It did make me realize, though, how slippery emotional tone can be. At times, I think, an audience might not welcome relief, shift of emotion, might prefer to float along in a predictable, constant stream of sadness, or hilarity, or horror, or rage, or sexual arousal, I think that plenty of times audiences might prefer the comfort of a consistent emotional tone. 
when literary folks speak disparagingly of certain genres, genre fiction particularly, such as romance or thrillers or pornography, I have a feeling that it's not really the genre that's the problem, but a tendency of some writing in those genres to strike a tone and stick with it, believing perhaps that their audience doesn't want to be jostled by shifts of feeling or emotional register. Maybe they're right. Marketing might have confirmed it. But I'll bet there are plenty of potential readers of romance or thrillers or pornography who would be delighted to be surprised by genuinely comic elements or genuine human pain or a hundred other emotional shifts and combinations our strange species is subject to. Intensification through contrast and emotional relief are important reasons for mixing emotions in our writing. There maybe should be a corollary to comic relief we might call tragic relief. A shift away from an unrelenting string of jokes that some humor writers inflict on us. In another 11th hour talk a few years ago, I complained about the opening pages of Bill Bryson's Lost Continent which consists almost entirely of jokes, every sentence a laugh line, the gags little more than Polish jokes translated into Iowan jokes. They're so stupid, they're so fat, they have such bad haircuts, they dress so badly, the farmers. It's a travel book, and once Bryson actually starts traveling, which happens about three, three pages into the book, this monotone goes away. There's a mix of emotional registers. Something else happens in the writing farther down the road, something wonderful, but that's not our concern today. The lesson of Lost Continent for us today is that getting into the actual world, into the reality of actual human experience, as opposed to the world of joke books, brings us into an almost inevitably rich mix of emotions. Neither relief nor intensification seems to me to be the most important reason for mixing emotions in our writing. I'm pretty sure it's, um, that it's simply, I'm pretty sure that mixed emotions are simply true to the reality of human experience. I don't think that we ever experience one emotion at a time, which is why we probably should avoid asserting emotions. She was happy. She was so happy. Well, yes, but maybe she was also uneasy about how her less, less fortunate sister was going to react, and a little guilty about something she'd done to get her way, and resentful that it had taken so long, and a bunch of other things that she didn't even realize she was feeling. This is the main problem with asserting emotions. It tends to simplify and therefore falsify what a character is actually feeling, which is more often than not a tangle of emotions, some of them in direct conflict with each other. We tend to label the expected motion, the conventional reaction, and so diminish both the distinctiveness and the truth of a character and situation. And I think neither of those are things we want to do. One emotion doesn't cancel out another. We know that for sure. Gratitude might lie on top of resentment for a while, muffling it, but it's still there. 
Sorrow doesn't demolish the light. Not for long, not really, though we sometimes think it should. Every wake I've ever attended was struck with laughter. And I don't think that was because my friends and family are unusually heartless. I'd like to end the monologue portion um, of this 11th hour by mentioning a few examples of writers and works of writing that seem to me to be especially wonderful examples of the mixing of emotions that's driven by honesty, by courage, by the need to reflect the reality of human experience. Because I admire it so much and want to be sure that it's included, I'll begin with an essay set here in Iowa City, Joanne Beard's The Fourth State of Matter. Some of you certainly know it, but even if all of you have read it multiple times, it's worth reading again. Here's the first page or two. Joanne Beard, The Fourth State of Matter. A memoir piece. The collie wakes me up about three times a night, summoning me from a great distance as I row my boat through a dim, complicated dream. She's on the shoreline, barking, wake up. She's staring at me with her head slightly tipped to the side, long nose, gazing eyes, toenails clenched to get a purchase on the wood floor. We used to call her the face of love. She totters on her broomstick legs into the hallway and over the door sill into the into the kitchen, makes a sharp left at the refrigerator, careful, almost went down, then a straightaway to the door. I sleep on my feet in the cold of the doorway, waiting. Here she comes, lift her down the two steps. She pees, then stands, lassie in a ratty coat, gazing out in the yard. In the porch light, the trees shiver, the squirrels turn over in their sleep. The Milky Way is a long smear on the sky, like something erased on a blackboard. Over the neighbor's house, Mars flashes white, then red, then white again. Jupiter is hidden among the anonymous blinks and glitterings. It has a moon with sulfur-spewing volcanoes and a beautiful name, Io. I learned that at work from the group of men who surround me there, space physicists, guys who spend days on end with their heads poked through the fabric of the sky, listening to the sounds of the universe. Guys whose own lives are ticking like alarm clocks, getting ready to go off, although none of us are aware of it yet. The dog turns and looks, waits to be carried up the two steps. Inside the house, she drops like a shoe into her, onto her blanket, a thud, an adjustment. I've climbed back under my covers already, but her legs stuck underneath her. We can't get comfortable. I fix the leg. She rolls over and sleeps. Two hours later, I wake up, and she's gazing at me in the darkness, the face of love. She wants to go out again. I give her a boost, balance her on her legs, right on time, 3.40 a.m. There are squirrels living in the spare bedroom upstairs. Three dogs also live in this house, but they were invited. I keep the door of the spare bedroom shut at all times because of the squirrels and because that's where the vanished husband's belongings are stored. Two of the dogs, the smart little brown mutt and the Labrador, spend hours sitting patiently outside the door waiting for it to be opened so they can dismantle the squirrels. The collie can no longer make it up the stairs, so she lies at the bottom and snores or stares in an interested manner at the furniture around her. 
I can take almost anything at this point. For instance, that my vanished husband is neither here nor there. He's reduced himself to a troubled voice on the telephone three or four times a day. Or that the dog at the bottom of the stairs keeps having mild strokes, which cause her to tilt her head inquisitively and also to fall over. She drinks prodigious amounts of water and pees great volumes onto the folded blankets where she sleeps. Each time this happens, I stand her up, dry her off, put fresh blankets underneath her, carry the peed-on blankets down to the basement, stuff them into the washer, and then into the dryer. By the time I bring them back upstairs, they are needed again. The first few times this happened, I found the dog trying to stand up, gazing with frantic concern at her own rear end. I praised her and patted her head and gave her treats until she settled down. Now I know whenever it happened. Now I know whenever it happens because I hear her tail thumping against the floor in anticipation of reward. In re retraining her, I've somehow retrained myself, bustling cheerfully down to the basement, arms drenched in urine, the task of doing load after load of laundry strangely satisfying. She is Pavlov and I am her dog. I'm fine about the vanished husband's boxes stored in the spare bedroom. For now, the boxes and the phone calls persuade me that things could turn, could turn around at any moment. The boxes are filled with 13 years of his pack ratness, statistics textbooks that still harbor an air of desperation, smarmy suit coats from the Goodwill, various old Halloween masks, and one giant black paper mache thing he made that was supposed to be Elvis's hair, but didn't turn out. A collection of ancient Rolling Stones t-shirts. You know he's turning over a new leaf when he leaves the Rolling Stones behind. What I can't take is the squirrels. They come alive at night, throwing terrific parties in the spare bedroom making thumps and crashes. Occasionally, a high-pitched squeal is heard amid bumps and the sound of scrabbling toenails. I've begun sleeping downstairs on the blue vinyl dog couch, the sheets slipping off, my skin stuck to the cushions. This is an affront to the two younger dogs who know the couch belongs to them. As soon as I settle in, they creep up and find their places between my knees and elbows. I'm on the couch because the dog in the blanket gets worried at night. During the day, she sleeps the catnappy sleep of the elderly. But when it gets dark, her eyes open and she is agitated, trying to stand whenever I leave the room, settling down only when I'm next to her. We are in this together, the dying game, and I read for hours in the evening with one foot on her back, getting up only to open a new can of beer or take blankets to the basement. At some point, I stretch out on the vinyl couch and close my eyes, one hand hanging down, touching her side. By morning, the dog arm has become a nerveless club that doesn't come around until noon. My friends think I'm nuts. There are plenty of mixed emotions in these first few pages. Sadness over the sick and dying dog, deep affection for the dog, emotion that we see importantly, crucially, in the author's actions, the subject of another whole craft talk. Resentment for the vanished husband, fascination with science, laughter in almost everything involving the squirrels who occupy the guest bedroom, and so forth. And it goes on to be even funnier as a friend comes over 
to evict the squirrels. None of this involves gags, jokes. It's just her reality. And then the reality goes desperately, heartbreakingly dark, though it's still the world of dog pee and vanished husband and invading squirrels. As some of you know, the fourth state of matter is about the slaughter of a number of Joanne Beard's friends and colleagues in the University of Iowa Physics Department by a disgruntled graduate student. It gets about as sad and horrifying as literature can get. The subject was national news. Almost anything anybody wrote about it was gripping and powerful. But Beard's openness to a mix of emotions raises this essay to an entirely different level of power. Among the important moves that Joanne Beard makes in The Fourth State of Matter is to allow her own character to be vulnerable, even complicit, inside the world of the tragedy. She had a low-level running feud with one of the faculty members who was killed. She ignored the graduate student who killed him, dismissed him. She'd stayed home from work with her sick dog the day of the shooting. This willingness to expose yourself or characters you most identify with seems to me to be inextricably linked with the mixing of emotions. I can't think of a hard logical reason this should be so. And one of you might be able to help me with this uh, in a few minutes. I just know it to be the case. A wonderful example is David Sedaris, one of the funniest writers alive today, and also one of the most heartbreaking. It's the humor, I'm certain, that sells the books, but it's his willingness to go into darkness, including the darkness within himself that makes the books so powerful. Again and again, though not in every essay, I need to say, Sedaris allows himself to be not just the butt of the joke, which is comparatively easy, though not for everyone, but genuinely blameworthy, cruel, selfish, greedy, insensitive, which is not easy at all, not for anyone. We've just passed the half hour so limit, I promised, uh, for the monologue portion, um, but I want to at least mention a few other writers I go to, and I want to be reminded of the power of mixed feelings. Frank O'Hara, for instance, who can be bawdy and is always eccentric in some ways in his poems, showing himself wandering around in Manhattan during lunch hour, a goofy yet also very intellectual guy, observing things on the street, having an encounter with a bank teller, making mistakes, and then plunges into sweaty grief, seeing a death notice in a newspaper. Grace Paley, one of the bravest writers, I think, who ever lived, reflecting herself in stories of flawed, vulnerable women, always funny on some level, but willing to engage savage, racially fraught violence, as in The Little Girl, or Deep Sadness, as in Samuel, or a dozen other stories. I mentioned Flannery O'Connor. Uh, we'd mentioned um, Mir um, Miriam Taves. I, two names I wrote on the board just because they might not be familiar to people. Um, and Miriam Taves is one of them, a Canadian writer, um, fantastic. Uh, James Joyce, Dennis Johnson, Tom Drury, Homer, at least the Homer of the Odyssey. We could spend another hour, I keep moving this around, don't I? We could spend another hour 
naming authors who startle and convince us again and again with their mix of emotions. But I want to hear from you, your experiences with this as reader and writer, any questions you might have. William Butler Yeats is not well known for his comic sensibility, but he was willing to make himself vulnerable and ridiculous in some of his poems, and he has at least one great comic and infinitely serious character, the beggar woman Crazy Jane. And I'm going to give her the last word, and then we'll have a conversation. Crazy Jane talks with the bishop, William Butler Yeats. I met the bishop on the road, and much said he and I, those breasts are flat and fallen now, those veins must soon be dry. Live in a heavenly mansion, not in some foul sty. Fair and foul are near of kin, and fair needs foul, I cried. My friends are gone, but that's a truth, nor grave nor bed denied, learned in bodily lowliness and in the heart's pride. A woman can be proud and stiff when on love intent. But love has pitched his mansion in the place of excrement. For nothing can be sole or whole that has not been rent. Thanks very much. Thank you so much, yeah. Lon, oh, for this amazing you. talk. Thank you.